how I feel at the end of a successful mule deer hunt is just higher than any other animal that I've ever hunted. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today I have Hoyt President Randy Walk on with me. How's it going, Randy? Going awesome, man. Couldn't be better. Well, good, good. We uh we wanted to talk about mule deer hunting. And I don't know how many of you out there uh how much you know about Randy, but um Randy is he's a very accomplished bow hunter. Um he's done a lot of hunting considering that his busiest time of year a lot of times is hunting season there at Hoyt. But uh, Randy is he's an accomplished bow hunter. He is an excellent mule deer hunter. And actually, uh, mule deer hunting is his favorite. That, 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 if you had to choose, we've had this discussion before, Randy. Yeah, I'm an many, elk many, guy. And yeah, many, many, many times. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I really do enjoy elk hunting. And and I, I like hunting all kinds of animals, of course, and I, in all kinds of places. And I mean, all the adventure that comes with that. But I mean, if I, if I was pushed into a corner and it was yeah. only going to have one tag a year, it'd be a mule deer tag. That's for sure. Yep. I still think you're crazy, but uh, yep. Hey, everybody to their own. I'm, I'm, I'm an elk guy, but, uh, Randy's got some very good reasons, um, behind why he would choose mule deer list. Give a few of them. Well, I think, you know, uh, I, I have, I grew up. Uh, here in Utah, uh, bow hunting and, you know, the first big game animal I ever shot was a mule deer. And what we grew up hunting was mule deer, you know, yeah. and did a lot of, you know, as a, as a youth, you know, did a lot of bow hunting and rifle hunting. And, you know, what we did was mule deer hunting and that, that was kind of core to our family. So it's where I cut my teeth for sure. But I think the other side of that is, you know, over time and doing that and just being, um, being me, I, I guess what I've discovered, uh, is my personal pride you know, is much higher, right? Like how I feel at the end of a successful mule deer hunt is just higher than any other animal that I've ever hunted. And I think it's somewhat tributed to, you know, the difficulty that I see that mule deer, the challenge that mule deer bring, uh, to, to the hunter and, and most of my hunting and, and where I enjoy mule deer hunting the most is early season. You know, our right. season are, opens, uh, you know, mid, uh, August here and runs through the middle of September. So we're basically hunting velvet bucks, velvet yeah. bucks, bachelor herded up um you know they got one you know they're not worried about anything they're not chasing they're typically in bachelor groups uh you know uh lots of eyes uh it's just it's a uh, it's just been a bigger challenge for me and i think the reward coming out of success there has just always been something that's you know tickled me like no other you know, animal has right well and i think one of the one of the key differences between elk hunting and mule deer hunting is oftentimes elk hunting is kind of a team thing. You've got two yeah. or three of you that are hunting together. You've got somebody calling for you. A lot of times with muleys, it's a solo deal. It's you against that animal. It, it, you're the one sitting up there doing all the glassing and waiting for that animal to get into the position, you know, where you can put a good stock on um, a lot of times. And with you, it usually is. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's just you out there. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've spent the vast majority of my time chasing mule deer by myself. I mean, there's the occasional hunting with the brother, hunting with my dad, hunting with some friends. But the reality is, if you're if you're for me, if if you're going to be really serious about it, what you need to be able to do is not have to worry about anybody else. You yeah. know what they're doing, where they're going. Not not so much in the sense that they screw you up or they help you, but just you know, there's something about you know being in the woods with somebody else and and you're just kind of wondering where are they at and what are they doing and what are they looking at. And, that's all a distraction for me. And I've, I've found my greatest moments and, and my greatest success on those hunts where I'm completely by myself. Now, you know, that being said, I've had some great help, uh, you know, with some hunts in, in certain areas with friends who have glassed up bucks that, that I maybe would have missed and they found them end of the day, you know, uh, I might've been the one that got in there and was the one who got it killed. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful to those moments, you know, when you've got some help out there. And of course, it's always good to have help when you're packing out, but at the end of the day, I would, I would just much rather be out there by myself where it's, it's really up to me to make the right decisions on that buck and on that play and, uh, and the situation, the train, the weather, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So you're, you're a DIY mule deer hunter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, um, I, it's one of the species that I really have, you know, uh, almost refused to pay somebody to help me hunt. 
right. you know, in my career, you know, being president of Hoyt, uh, you know, you do like anybody who's got a job, you, you know, you've got some, uh, limitation to the amount of time you can put in the field. And what I found over the years is I've, I found myself doing a lot more guided hunts as a result of that. Right. Because, right. you know, one, you've, you've got the connections and, uh, you know, I like the big adventures and I like to do a lot of the other things. And, and so I do that and I enjoy those hunts, but when it comes to mule deer hunting, yeah, I'm going to yeah. go do it on my own. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. good. Um, <laughs> Just like you were saying, it's just more enjoyable for you alone. Um, so, real quick, what what is your favorite mule deer you've ever taken? Uh, oh, I don't know. I have to look at the collection and see. There's a few of them out there. <laughs> you know, the funny thing about mule deer, and I think I think it's true with with all species. Is, is the typical question is, is what's your best buck, right? And I can yeah, oh yes, yeah. I can tell you what my best buck is. It doesn't necessarily mean he's my favorite trophy. That's and a big right. part of that trophy comes from what that hunt was, what that challenge of that hunt was. Uh, but I, I would say, I mean, I've, I've not broke the 200 mark. I've shot a number of bucks in the, in the mid one nineties. And, uh, I took a, a buck in the mid nineties, uh, class buck over in Nevada. And, uh, it took me two years to get that buck shot. And, uh, so I hunted him for two years and, because of that and because of the situation and the story around that particular deer for me personally uh clearly that makes him my best trophy and oh, not yeah. to mention he is one of my better bucks but that's not why he's my best trophy uh it, right. it was the it was the two-year campaign to get him figured out and I, I missed him the first year you know i boogered him up two or three times the first year took me a lot of time to to, to find him and, and get him calmed down and get him back into huntable spot screwed that up so first year was me learning that deer and and more than anything else hoping that he would get through the muzzleloader hunt and the rifle hunts and and be there next year and when i found him that second year it was it was a spectacular your re-engagement and uh right. and, and uh caught him on the same hill in the same canyon using the same beds he went back to his old ways and the beauty was he put on about uh he put on about 10 more inches that first year i hunted him he was a solid mid 180 buck but when i killed him he he, he went mid in the mid 90s so that was also nice was this an alpine deer above timberline or lower? no this is a this was a desert deer um really? out uh, over in nevada i shot this deer in 231 mm -hmm. uh so uh not a not a big you know tall mountain but a desert kind of mountain terrain pretty wide open i like it in a wide open country right. um it, and uh that unit is a is a unit that i've really enjoyed hunting over the years and you know learned the mountain really well and kind of what deer do and what they don't do and what happens when they're pushed versus they're boogered and all those things are different right how many people are on the mountain and and uh yeah uh I, effectively what happened on that second year is i figured out where he goes mm -hmm. when he gets bumped a little bit you know uh, right. a, lot of pe a lot of people think those big mule deer when you bump them really hard they go nocturnal and i haven't really necessarily found that to be the case they they just go to their summer home their right. second home and uh, that second year, I learned where, where his second home was, what draw he liked to hang in, in when the pressure was on. And then I was able to, to hunt him in there and ended up getting him shot. Really? So one of the main questions that everybody asked me, was this a deal where, where you had spotted him and, and you had him bedded and put a stock on him while he was bedded? Uh, this, well, the, the day I killed him was an all-day event. Uh, so I had actually... Um, hiked into an area, uh, where I was hoping to locate this buck and, uh, never found him in the morning. And midday I was in a situation where I was debating about what my, my midday plan was going to be, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm noon, 1230, one o'clock, something like that midday. And on the desert that time of the year, I think the temperature was about 104 degrees. So you know, I was, I was, nothing was moving and I had glassed everything I could glass up and, and hadn't put my eyes on this buck. And so I, I had made the decision to stay on the mountain and I was just going to stay on, on the mountain that day. I, you know, it's probably a two and a half hour hike off the mountain. I could have got down to, you know, trail and, you know, got to my camp and whatnot, and then been back on the mountain later that afternoon. But I decided to stay on the mountain that day and I was laying in a deer bed, mm -hmm. um, where there was some pretty decent shade and I was just going to nap up there for a little while. And, and the backstory on that is the deer bed that I ended up laying in to take that nap was the bed that that buck was in the first time I ever laid my eyes on him the year before. Oh, wow. And so I was laying in his bed, right? Yeah. The year before and uh, taking a nap and, uh, and, you know, obviously continuing to keep my eyes behind glass. And 
about uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon, there was some deer that had started to move around a little bit, and I got a, a glimpse of seven bucks that were running together. Um, and it looked like there was a pretty good buck in there, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. I didn't get a really good look at them. They were uh, they were quite a ways away, um, and so I kept an eye on them. And they bedded up. And once they bedded up, about forty minutes after they bedded up, I made my move to get over and get in position above them to see what they were. And when I got there, it was him. And and wow. he and he was the bigger buck of the group, and I spent the rest of the day on that buck um, in range. You know, he'd sneak, he'd get away from me, but the trick was making sure that those bucks had no idea I was tagging along, right. and uh, really managing the wind, staying out of the sun, you know, staying off the skylines, you know, staying covered up, which meant that for the most part, as I was trailing those deers or deer around for you know throughout the rest of that evening, you know, I was in the two to three hundred yards away from a range. Yeah. And when they, when they bedded up, uh, the last time, uh, that they'd bedded up, I was able to put myself 40 yards above them. And I knew they were there. I could see antler tips in the brush they were laying in, but I really, at that point, couldn't even make out which buck was what. And, and I just, you know, waited them out and got a nice suntan, uh, sitting in the, in the open sun at that point. Oh, I couldn't, gosh. couldn't get, couldn't get covered up, but I was, I just needed them to get up and make their next move. And I was right on top of them. And that's effectively what happened. And. He was the last buck to stand up that sucker though. And yeah. uh, so as these other bucks stood up and, and started to move around, uh, you know, being super cautious and super careful to not let any of them pick you up was, was a bit of a challenge. And, and, uh, when he finally stood up and took a stretch, you know, I was, I was right on top of him at 40 yards. And, uh, the end of that story is I packed him out that night, took me till about midnight to get him out of that oh, damn canyon. Yeah. But by the time I got him out of there, uh, it was, uh, it was quite rewarding to, to know you put two years on him and finally got him shot. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I was just talking about a question that I'm frequently asked and that is people that are hunting mule spotting and stalking mule deer. Do I come in above them or should I come in below them or try and get on their level? Um, is, are, do you have an answer to that? What you prefer? Well, yeah, I definitely prefer to get above them. I mean, if, if there's any way possible to, to get some elevation on them, that's the, that's where I'm going to come. Um, mm -hmm. and if you're going to come in on them, you know, level with them, that can work really well too. And I've had a lot of success doing that. Uh, but your success is going to diminish dramatically if you're trying to come in below them. And, and even if they're covered up, even if they're in really good cover, uh, it's just, it's, you know, mule deer bed like any other animal for the most part, they bed looking downhill. Yep. And, uh, that's just going to be the, the more challenging approach. And so I try to avoid that as much as possible. If that's all that you got, look, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm yeah. going to make an attempt. You right? I may, you know, I, I have a hard time seeing a buck in a, in a situation where I think I can get to him. I can get in range and pass him because he's not in an ideal range. I'm a guy who's going to go give it a go. Right. And, uh, and, and I think what comes with that is the, is the experience that, if I booger him really hard, I might not see him for a few days, um, but he's going to come back. Uh, it's where he wants to be. Right. And, uh, you know, they don't, at least those summer deer here in, in this part of the country where I hunt, I don't necessarily find them, you know, instantly going nocturnal. I think that's an excuse a lot of people lead, lead in with is, is, you know, I boogered him, he's now nocturnal and I'll, I'm not going to hunt him. Um, he, he may, he may hide out for a couple of days. He may go to his second home for a couple of days. If you know where that is, go after him. If you don't know where that is, you know, wait him out. He'll come back. And, uh, you know, those bucks have a tendency uh, that I found to, to find themselves a few days later back doing what they've always done right? and, and just be there and right. um, just stay in their wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, do you, have you ever found anything that is, uh, similar between hidey holes, like the places that bucks seek out when they do get busted? Um, yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, they're, they're going to look for steeper country often, or they're going to look for heavier timber. I, I think, uh, you know, again, a lot of this desert country that I hunt where I'm, I'm hunting these desert mountains, which, you know, by nature aren't very tall mountains and not heavily timbered. Uh, I think a mistake a lot of people make hunting the desert kind of country is assuming that these bucks are going to, you know, go to that heavy timber cliffed out you know, in canyons and, and that kind of stuff. And what I found is what they're doing is they're going off the mountain. They're going down on the flats and getting in the heavy. Where they can heavy. see. They, they can see and much more difficult for you to find them and way difficult to get close because, it, you know, get down in those cedar draws and those cedar canyons where, you know, as a hunter, you get down in there on, on their level. I mean, you can see 20 yards if you're lucky and you might catch a, 
glimpse of their feet or their antlers as they're busting off on you. But right. your ability to get in there and hunt them is is a hundred times more difficult. And I'll watch a lot of deer go do that. And if I know that they they're dropping into a particular canyon. Uh, as a general rule in that mode, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get up high where I can watch the watch where those deer are likely to start coming back out of those places. And, and I like to am, you know, look at trying to do some ambush hunting as they're, as they're moving from that hideaway place back to their normal range. That's a lot of fun to do. Um, right. and I enjoy doing that. And I've had a lot of success doing that, but you know, if it, the smarter guy would just let them go back to their normal routine and let them get back to the canyon they want to be in and feel a little bit more comfortable and then put them to bed and go sneak in on them, yeah. catch, them in, catch them in their bed. But I'm a kind of an impatient guy. Well, not only that, I mean, you, you, have, you have a career, you have a job, you don't have unlimited time to be out there. And for me, I've always found that that's one of the, that's one of the biggest constraints that there is, is just time. You know, I can't, I, I often can't afford to wait three days for a buck to come back into a certain place. You know what I mean? I would, you've got to do something. Um, yeah. if, if we were, if, we, if time was not a factor, it would be much easier to go that route. Um, one of the other questions I had for you is that I, I know some really good, uh, uh, really good deer hunters that, uh, they don't, they have a certain distance that they don't want to get any closer. Um, uh, they're Almer smart. about 40 yards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. They're smart. You know what I mean? They're smart. I, um, can, I, I can tell you that I've blown, I've, I've screwed more big bucks up by getting under 40 yards than I ever, ever wish to admit, to be honest with you. Is that your mark? Is 40? Well, I, I would say, I, I mean, I love 40 yards for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, I, 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 obviously I shoot a lot. I practice a lot. I do most of my shooting and prep at longer distances and this you know 60 yards is my mark if i'm going to go to the back range and practice i'm going to be standing at 60 yards it makes everything closer than that easy and you know if you're if you're well dialed at 60 yards and shooting really good at 60 yards and you know and capable of shooting really good at 70 yards when you get to 40 it's a chip shot it feels like That's a chip right. shot and and the, your confidence is going to be significantly higher which means you're going to you're going to find yourself thinking less about the shot you're just going to go make stuff happen I, right I love 40 yards. I'll take a 40 yard shot, uh, over any other distance for sure. Um, you know, I mean, you get closer than 40, you're just in, you're kind of in that zone where more stuff can go wrong much, much faster in terms of deer being able to see you, hear you, smell you, just pick you up. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the lesson is, you know, what's that distance that you are super comfortable making a shot? Steep right. uphill, steep downhill uh, on a deer bedded with a little bit of breeze. I mean, where are you super confident in your shot? Um, you know, what's that distance? And when you get there, uh, I've made this mistake so many times, right? When you get to that distance and the buck's bedded, and just, he, wait him, just wait him out, dude. Just wait him out. The temptation and, uh, is to go closer. It is. I, I moved in on a big buck in southern Utah. I had him bedded at 40. I just needed to wait him out. And, uh, you know, two hours in, I, I got impatient and I made a move on him. And, you know, at about literally at about 12 yards, um, that, that whole thing come undone and I never got a shot off. And, oh, uh, that's a deer I wish I could have back. Uh, yeah. but you know, that's impatience. And, and so I do think there's a lot of, there's definitely a, a lot to that, right? Don't, don't push it. I mean, again, patience is a game when you're on yep. big winter. And my style of hunting is find those bucks, keep an eye on them all morning long. I mean, if they put themselves in a place that I can slip in on them and, and, and what I call get an ambush shot on them, I'm going to, I'm going to go do that. But if it's challenging and tricky at all, I'm just going to try to put them to bed, you all know? Right. And, and, uh, the thing is, if those deer bed early or they, if, you know, oftentimes they won't, you know, they'll bed early. Everybody thinks they bed early, but you know, they're going to get back up and dink around. And, and I've all typically try to hold off on my stock until afternoon, right? I, I want to get to one o'clock. If I can, if that bet buck stays in his bed till noon, there's a good chance he's going to stay there the rest of the day. But if he goes to bed at nine, I'm going to wait because he might get yeah. up and move. At he's he's going to move. move. And they're going to do that as, you know, I want to, I want to know he's down for the rest of the day, really down for the count. So if I can get that buck to stay in his bed or, or put him to bed, you know, and, and then push through that 12 o'clock, one o'clock cycle and, and gives me plenty of time to plan my route. It gives me plenty of time to, ch to watch the wind change, which takes place about midday. 
you know, it just gives you all that time to calm yourself in there and then go make that move on that buck, um, you know, you know, after one o'clock. And when yeah. you, when you get in range and you know that you've got a shot, all you need him to do is stand up, park your butt on the, you know, on the ground and wait for him to stand up, be ready for right. him to stand up, but park your butt there and wait for him to stand up. And, uh, those bucks stand out of those beds that first time. If they stand up on their own, they're calm. Uh, they got to take a pee. That's what they're thinking yeah. about. And yep. that's all on their mind. And they have, and, and they are so confident that nobody's got close to them. And then there you are. And it's time to lay the hammer down. Well, and there's a couple other that, that you talked about the temptation of going closer. Um, the other temptation, um, the other, well, when you get closer, I actually feel like a deer is much more likely to jump the string if you're under 40 yards than they are when you're over 40 yards. Um, it, 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 you're further away, but you're, when that bow goes off, it's not right there on top of them. You know what yeah, I mean? I, yeah. I think there's, there's definitely something to that. And I think the, you know, as, as much as, as that makes sense, the other things that, that really makes sense, if that buck has no idea you're there, he's less likely to jump the string. So when you button those two things together, yep. you're, you're 40 or, or so yards away, he's putting, you've put yourself in a situation where now that deer has given you a shot, but he has no clue you're there. The likelihood is going to jump your, your string is, is, is significantly less. Right. And the, the other temptation that I was talking about was that, uh, um, the temptation to try and get them up. And I've oh. seen guys do it. You know what I mean? You, oh, I've and and <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's been times where I've, where I've been really close closer than I wanted to be. And you get stuck in one position and you feel like, oh man, I just can't handle this anymore. Or you get stuck in that sunshine, like you were talking about. And that's a real, it, yeah, that's something it, you're exactly right. There's been a couple times where I felt like I was having heat stroke. Um, and this is a shoot. A couple of them have been in October or November, you know, later in the year like that. But that sun will sit there and roast you, and there's this temptation to try and get this buck up, throw a stick, make a noise, things like that. Don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> don't no, do don't it. do it. I, I have shot some deer by getting them to stand up, but I can tell you most of them just run off and laugh at you. Yeah, yeah, 90% you know, of the time. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a bad crapshoot. That's a game that's, uh, that, that's you're not likely going to win for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the best thing you can do is, is just stick it out. And it, it is hard. I, I shot a, a big 30 inch buck over in Nevada, the same unit actually. And, uh, that I was talking about earlier. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I got in one of those situations, you know, where, where I got closer than I really needed to be. Yeah. Um, and, um, and couldn't get a shot off and couldn't, couldn't had no flexibility, right. To make, right. To, to move, to, to shift a foot, to, I mean, I was so close. Luckily, I caught a little bit of breeze in my favor, which gave me a little bit of cover. But I stood on that buck in the sun, in the wide open, and I stood loaded, you know, ready to draw on that buck for, for nearly uh, an hour and 30 minutes. And, I mean, an hour and 30 minutes in, you are bored hey. out of your mind, right? And, you're think and I'm thinking about everything. If I just take this step here, maybe I can get a shot. If I whistle at him, I can just get a shot. And luckily that day I, I stuck to my guns and I waited him out and that buck stood up and then I took a piss and then he took a piss and then I shot him <laughs> and everything, everything worked out really well. Well, um, and for you people out there listening that haven't been put in a situation like that before, they're like, oh, an hour and a half, I can hang in there for, an oh man, an hour and a half frozen in one particular position, especially when you're closer to the buck than you wanted to be. Because yeah, I've been not, stuck on on my knees for like two hours before, and yeah. it, it's torture. It, it, it is torture. Absolute it is torture. torture. Yeah, and um, and you know, and you know, the hour and thirty or so minutes goes by, and I I swear it was like five hours. Yeah, and I was I was standing in that situation. I was about eighteen yards off that buck. I had no choice. I couldn't move. I couldn't yeah. do. I could do nothing if I expected to get a shot on that buck. And it took an hour and a half of of patience and. I'll tell you, packing that deer out was probably one of one of the prouder moments of of my hunting career because uh, I wouldn't have been packing that buck out, you know, if I hadn't uh, if I hadn't learned a lesson that I had learned literally the month before that in Utah on mm -hmm. a hunt where I 
tried to whistle a buck up and that didn't work out. And I, that that was my reminder. And that on that Nevada hunt was don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Here's the other thing about trying to get them up. Um, Regardless of how you do it, they don't come up completely relaxed. No, they don't at all. It doesn't matter what kind of noise you make, whether you make a noise that sounds like another deer or anything else. It doesn't matter what has snuck in there on them. They don't like the idea that anything is around them. And when they get up, now they're on red alert. And the likelihood that something's going to happen between the time you release that arrow and the time it gets to the deer is 10 times greater. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. That, I mean, the lesson in that is that if you make him stand up, you've announced to him that there's something wrong and he needs to get up and take a look at it. That's, yep. that's the worst scenario you have, if you're, especially if you're in tight on him. Yep. And, uh, and just like you, I have absolutely done it. <laughs> you know, oh, I've absolutely done it. But if you can have the discipline to sit there and, and the other thing is, is find the right position to get in when you know that you're going to be stuck there for a while. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because you don't want to be moving around. You don't want no. to, you know, come off of your knees and down to your side and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think the, I think one of the things, you know, which is a hard thing to do, uh, I think for a lot of people, but when I know that I'm going to get close and I'm likely to get into that situation which as I've got older and more experienced, I realize is more of the case than not, if you're doing it right, right? You're going to get in, you're going to wait him out, is don't take your pack with you. Don't take your water bottle with you. Don't take those things that'll be a distraction and you're thirsty and you're getting baked. So I'm going to just take a little drink because all those extra little things you're going to do, whether or not you're there for 10 minutes or whether you're there for an hour and a half, you're going to just, just roll up the odds that you're going to screw something up. He's going to hear you. He's going to smell you. He's going to see you and, uh, and then the gig's over. You got to go in. I, I get rid, I, I take it all. I get rid of my pack. I get rid of, you know, if I got anything in my pockets, that's going to be a distraction. I don't, you know, just, I just go in there, me and the bow and I get in and get in position. And now you're just, you're locked up. There's nothing to do, but wait. And right. you just, just hold yourself to it and wait him out. Yep. Yep. You, you absolutely have to don't find out the hard way. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then don't be discouraged too. Right. Because I, I, I tell my kids this, you know, as, as they've, you know, hunted with me and as I try to teach them some of these hunting tactics, especially on these mule deer is, you know, you're not, you're not going to go do this and have it work out, you know, the first time or the second right. time. And, uh, I, I tell my kids all the time, you know, your, your opportunity to get a shot on a big buck, a big mule deer buck, especially in this desert country, your opportunity to make that happen is probably about one or two in every 10 stocks. Yeah. And then, and then you still got to make your shot, right? So plan on missing once in a while or, you know, you know, things not working out. So, you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to just stay with it. You got to do it. You're going to mess it up and you, and you got to be not frustrated and you got to go do it again and you're going to go right. do it again and you're going to go do it again. And then you're going to get that opportunity where that buck stands up and has no idea you're there and you're yeah. in range and he's the kind of deer you want to, you want to shoot. Uh, yeah. But don't be, don't be discouraged and don't be frustrating about messing, messing up. Uh, right. cause it's, it's, you know, the mess ups are far greater than the success stories. Far greater. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And w- we were talking about this earlier, you know, you, you hunt most of your deer in that velvet phase. Um, I do most of my hunting, uh, in the later season around the rut and, depending upon where you're hunting mule deer, there's, there's opportunities for both. But a lot of these principles that we're talking about are applicable to both times. Um, you've just got different sets of challenges. Um, That's right. Yeah. That, that early season that you're hunting, uh, they're much more patternable. They're much more patternable. And the eyeballs that you're going to have to deal with are usually other bucks. Yeah. And which, which actually I'd rather deal with other bucks than, than does for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Mean, isn't, that, isn't that the case? But yeah, the, those challenges, uh, are, you know, are different. I think the, the key is, you know, is, is having a sense for where the deer are going to want to be, where they're going to go when they, when they feel a little pressure or they get a little nervous. Um, and where they, what are they going to do when they get really boogered up? And, you know, and those are the studies when I, when I pre-scout, you know, I typically, you know, when I, when I'm scouting in, you know, late June and early July, if we're going to hunt here in, in late August and early September, where I find the bucks that I want to really hunt in that early 
part of the year, you know, in that July time frame, it's not necessarily where I'm going to hunt those bucks because right. you're going to have more people start to scout. You're going to have, you know, you know, some eight guys going to run an ATV up a ridge. You shouldn't be running up. You're going to have all these other things that start to happen in that July and August in that, you know, for me in that pre, uh, pre-opening season and, and the likelihood that that buck is where you found him in July on opening day is, is a kind of a crapshoot. And, uh, so what I'm, what I'm really watching for in, in early scouting season is, you know, where, where is he likely going to go with a little bit of pressure? And cause you know, I know the pressure's coming and that pressure hits. And then I, you know, I'm lucky I find him in, in his, what I call his second home, right? The Canyon that is kind of where he'll be if he has to be, but not necessarily where he wants to be. And, um, I find greater success catching those deer in there. They kind of seem to get into these, into their hideout canyons. They, they find that they'll finally get relaxed there first and easier, right? They, they, cause people aren't getting into those canyons. It's definitely a canyon without a road in it. Right. Uh, a canyon without an ATV trail in it, a canyon that maybe is a little off the beaten path where somebody might hike into. That's where he's going to go, you know, when the pressure hits. And, and so just knowing where those places are, um, mm-hmm. and say, and keeping real tight attention to, to those places, uh, is, is where, you know, I'll find a lot of success. Well, you're talking about hunting those desert mountains too. So how big of a factor does water come into for you during that early season? Well, um, uh, not, not as much as a lot of people think, because, you know, quite honestly, in a lot of these desert mountains and a lot of this desert country out there, we have, we still have a lot of water, you know, there's a okay. lot of different, there's a lot of different water options. Uh, and those bucks will bounce from water hole to water hole. I mean, don't, don't think he's, this is where he waters. You know, he'll, he'll water on this hole in, you know, every third day and evenings and that water hole every, you know, second day on the, in the morning. And, you know, I mean, it, it sometimes you'll catch those damn bucks going to water in the middle of the day, you know, right. and don't, don't let that surprise you. Cause that'll happen, especially mm-hmm. if there's, if there's light pressure on them, you know? Um, and so, you know, water for me, you know, I, obviously you need water in the area, but yeah. And, and and limited water seems good, but I think I've discovered that if there's several water options that these bucks may have, you know, in a particular range that's not too big, you're 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 more likely to hold those big bucks in that country where they've got a couple of options. These big deer don't want to be, you know, I, this is the only place I can get a drink of water. That that's uh, that's scary to them, right? Right. So right. I uh, I avoid I avoid places where there is really limited water. I don't think you're going to find as many big bucks in that kind of country. They just right, get smart right. enough to realize they need they need more water sources than one water source. Right. So you're just finding less deer there, period. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. And, uh, you know, hunting the eastern plains of Colorado or western Kansas and things like that later in the season around the rut, the, uh, amazingly, the, those, are, those are water-stricken places. Those are places with fewer water options. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but a lot of times later in the season, you don't have the heat that you do and you don't have them watering as frequently as you do, you know, earlier in the season when it's 105 degrees out or, you know, even anything above 80 degrees. That's when, you know, they've they've got to hit water once a day at least, you know, um, and hit it hard. So it's not as big a factor for me later in the season. But, um, yeah, that I was wondering how much that paid into your scouting. So. Your early season scouting, um, what other things are you looking for? Do you have food sources that you look for specifically? Um, well, yeah, I think, you know, you learn, uh, you know, what those desert mountains are, are, you know, have on them and, and really paying attention to what the deer really, you know, want to eat. And we do have a lot of acorn country, you know, out on some of the, you get some, some of the deeper canyons on these desert ranges. And of course they, they like that kind of country for a lot of different reasons and, you know, if you got a decent acorn crop, crop you'll you, you know you might see a heavier concentration of deer in there. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's really about watching the uh, you know almost the uh, you know how dry the feed is. As the feed dries up, those deer will move definitely to different country, um, and uh, that can be a real challenge. But trying to figure out you know you know just what is the what's the what is the food source and and what's the condition of it and how close to it is to the canyon or the place they want to live and their water source and then. You know, I think the bigger issue for me out here really is ultimately is what's the overall traffic. I mean, you know, so much of really, really good deer country has got a road up every ridge or a road up every canyon. 
And right. uh, those deer love that country until those ATVs start rolling in every day. And so I'm looking for the country that is similar to that where I might, you know, what's the country that's really similar to where they are in July that's much more remote but not a million miles away. And I, and I will really spend some time, you know, trying to learn that terrain, you know, you know, how to get into it, how to get into it quietly. If you go in this way, what, what's your cover when you get there? And I've just found a lot of success in, in those places, realizing that as soon as that little bit of light ATV pressure or scouting pressure comes, you know, in that early July, mid-July, late July, early August, where those deer are going to end up, they're going to end up in a place like that. And if there's a decent food source there, that's where they'll right. hold up. Right. Well, and you know, what's funny, a lot of people in my experience get fooled by the fact that they're, they are going up there and they're riding their ATVs and they see these, four, you know, these younger bucks, year and a half old bucks, two-year-old bucks that are hanging around, don't, don't really care about the ATVs, things like that. And this is, it, this is the crazy thing about mule deer, but you will have those deer that will just hang out in those areas. It doesn't really bother them um and and you think okay the big ones are going to be here too older mule deer are a different animal than those younger ones yeah there's something completely different isn't isn't that so true about everything right aren't we all a little wiser in our older age right yeah and and if you and if you think a mule deer is not that way well you're just crazy um it it takes them to about three or four years old before they really start to act differently but yeah. you you need a buck to get four or five years old before he's really a, a you know a solid good mature buck. So those there's kind of a coincidence of how all that happens. About the time they wise up, they're putting a lot more antler mass on. They're getting smarter, um, and they're also getting ornery. And I think you know there's just like all of us, right? We put up with a lot when we're young, but as we get older, we get a little ornery. And those bigger bucks get ornery, and they want to they want to be more secluded. They don't want to be, and even though they'll still hang out in big bachelor groups, if you watch those bachelor herd groups, you know, you get a, a group of 10 bucks or seven bucks or, you know, something like that together. And there, you know, oftentimes there's a really good shooter buck in there, but you watch his behavior in and around the behavior of the rest of the deer. And you'll see that he's a, he's different. He, he you yeah. know, he, he, he doesn't want to get close to, to other deer. He's going to keep his distance. He's going to be a little bit more ornery about pushing deer off. And the most fun thing to watch is to watch a group of bachelor bucks go into a bedding area. I got to tell this little story. This, this happens. It's so fun to watch, right? You watch a group of bachelor bucks go into a bedding area. The big buck will go over right away real quick. He'll go off to, off to the side a little bit. He'll plop down. You know, he's like one of the first bucks to lay down. And then all the other deer are trying to figure out, you know, they're, 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 they're building their beds or they're digging out a bed or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're bumping deer, you know, this bigger buck bumping a little buck out of a bed and stealing it away from him and ah about the time everybody settles down then that big old buck gets up and walks over and kicks the buck out of the bed he really wants to be in and takes it over and all the deer just stand there look at him like you dirty rotten son of a gun but it's hilarious to watch i've seen that happen so many times and that's then and that's just you know just another attribute that you see in these mule deer as they get older they just they, you know, they're even wise about that. Like, I'm not going to go work that bed over. I'm going to let you guys all go play, you know, musical chairs. And as soon as somebody, you know, figures out what bed's the most comfortable, I'm just going to come kick you out of it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's fun to watch. Well, and the, one of the other things that I've noticed over the years is that a lot of times they're, that you won't even find those five, six-year-old deer, those older deer with those, her, with those bachelor groups that have two and two-year-olds and one-and-a-half-year-olds in them. Um, a lot of times they'll be bachelored up with a couple other bucks that are over four years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they're just not tolerant of them. Yeah. They're not They're. It's almost like they're not tolerant of the stupidity that comes with the young age. Right. And they yeah. will, they will have a tendency to push them, push them off. Uh, but I'd say for me, I'd say, I'd say that's probably 50, 50. I mean, about, yeah. I, I've seen, you know, I've seen big bucks let, you know, spike bucks hang out in their bachelor herd group and just yeah. be part of the little group. Right. And be, be in the mix of it. Um, but, uh, but uh, 50% of the time you're right. You know, what you typically are going to see is it's a group of four-year-old or older deer together yeah. and, and, uh, not a lot of young bucks in, in with them. That's what you're looking for. Um, I, I want to ask you about your bow setups that you prefer for mule deer hunting. Is okay. there any one particular thing on your setup that you, re- uh, you know, that you're looking for in a bow setup for spot and stock mule deer hunting? Uh, well, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I, 
I probably set my bows up. I, I, I shouldn't say probably. I set my bows up the same for everything I'm doing. You know, I have a, I have a, a you know, a way and a logic and way I want my gear set up. And I don't really change gear depending on what I'm doing because that's too hard to keep track of, right? So I've kind of got the one the one method. Personally, I like to shoot a little longer axle to axle bow. I like a more a little bit more forgiving bow. And I'm a long I'm a longer draw guy. I shoot a 29 and a half inch draw length. So I like the longer draw length bows. Um I do try to keep my bows lightweight as possible and not get too hung up on, you know, adding a bunch of extra stabilization and big bulky sights and all that kind of stuff. I try to keep my setups as light as possible, as simple as possible. Uh the, the least complex setup that I'm comfortable of shooting. Um, and, uh, as a, you know, and then, and then just shoot it a lot, make sure you know your bow, right? Because in that moment, you know, this idea that you're going to draw your bow back and you're going to act like a target shooter and you're going to check your bubble and you're going to yeah. think about the wind and you're going to count your pins and you're going to, you know, do all these different things that are going to go through your head. That's easy to do out on the range in that moment, again, you're standing there at 40 yards. You've been sitting there for a long time. He finally stands up, gives you the shot. I mean, stuff's going to happen really fast. Yeah. And, and, I, and I want my setup to be super forgiving in that moment. In other words, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing overly complicated. Simple, right. lightweight, uh, balanced really well. I, I do work on, a, on, on getting a good pendulum-type balanced bow. I want the bottom half of my bow to be heavier than the top half of my bow. It helps me find bubble faster. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's really about just knowing your bow and having tremendous confidence in, in, in your bow, which means shoot a lot, right? right. Shoot your bow a lot. It's this idea. If you're, if you're the guy who's, you know, getting your bow out a few weeks before bow season and checking your sights and that's what you're doing, you know, I'm on the opposite side of that. Uh, you know, I, I typically am shooting five, six days a week. I do that anyway. I love to shoot archery, but, uh, when it comes to, to bow season, it's, it's, you know, hundred, hundred arrows a day, five, six days a week, you know, and right. it, it's about getting to know your bow. You want that bow to just be an extension of you in that mm-hmm. moment when you're on those, on those critical hunts. I, I, I want no surprises at that moment. I don't, I want to know exactly what that bow is going to do. Well, when we talked about the distance that you do most of your practicing at, and that for a long time, I've been a big believer in what I call double distance practice. So if you know that your mark that you're going to try and get to is 40 yards, and you're going to try to get to that point, and you're not going to try to get any closer. Man, the closer to 80 yards that you can do for the primary, the bulk of your practice, the better off you're going to be. Because just like Randy was talking about, if you're pra- if you're used to practicing out there, when you get to 40, now it's a chip shot. You know what I mean? Um, so don't if if you're expecting the, you know to get to 40 yards. Don't do most of your practicing at 40 yards. Yeah, Find exactly. a place where you can extend that. Yeah, for sure. And I and I I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, you you should you're gonna know more about your bow. You're gonna have more confidence in your bow. You're gonna you're gonna honestly you're gonna practice better. You're gonna have you're gonna practice better form. You're gonna you're gonna just learn. It's harder, obviously, to shoot well at those longer distances. And the more you practice as it and you hone that in, it just brings everything close, you know. Into, right. the, into into the easy realm when it comes to shoot your bow. The danger in that for, I think, a lot of people, uh, which is an odd yeah. danger, is I learn that I can shoot really good at 80 yards That's or right. 70 yards or 60 yards, and <clears throat> then I'm really tempted to want to take those longer shots. And I'm not a long shot guy. Um, right. You know, I, I think if you're shooting long like that on animals, uh, I don't, I'll be a little rude here, but maybe you're not really bow hunting at that point. Maybe you're just shooting at deer. Uh, get close. That's half the fun, man. That's the, right. when, when, when I talk about the real enjoyment of, of being successful on a mule deer, uh, that comes when you sit there for, you know, that 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is in that 40 yard range. And you, and you, and you tease the heck out of that buck and then, and then outsmarted him. And then he stands up and then you just take your chip shot out and lay the hammer down on him. That's, that's the most rewarding bow hunts I've, I've ever been on. Absolutely. And well, one of the other things about those longer shots, you might be capable of making that shot on a target 95% of the time. But like you're talking about, there's there's other things happening and it happens so fast. And there are so many bad things that can happen between when that arrow goes off and when the arrow makes impact when you get above that 60 yard mark. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, all it takes is a deer taking one step while that arrow's in flight. 
And now your hunt went from one of the most spectacular moments of your life to the one of the mo- one of the most dreadful moments of your entire life. That's um, right. And take it from me, I've it, it, I've been there. I've done it. I've it, and Randy's exactly right. When you're practicing out there, you get it in your head that you can make that shot. It isn't necessarily a shot that you ought to make on something that has a heartbeat and hair. You know. Yeah, and it, there is. There's just too many. There, there are too many things that can go wrong for sure. And too many things out of your control that can go wrong, but not to mention that you're in a different environment than standing there in your backyard at your range at 80 yards. You got a buck sat in front of you, a bunch of antler on his head. You're excited. Your adrenaline's pumping, you know, all the, all the emotions of the hunter going on. And you don't, it's very difficult to practice that. So you don't get a chance to practice that and you're at long range and the wind's blowing and, you know, just whatever's going on. And, um, and, and the goal, you, you know, what I always would tell people, you know, who want to argue me on that point is. If you can stand in your yard at, you know, 60 yards, 70 yards, 80 yards, whatever your distance is going to be, and you can hit that dot 100% of the time, all the time, that's a little different than where most people end up. Most people end up, you know, at 80 yards hitting, hitting, let's say hitting the kill zone, you know, comfortably most of the time. Most of the time, don't cut it. Right. Most right. of the time, don't cut it when you're shooting at a live animal. You know, yeah. you, you are being, you are being disrespective to, to the animal in, in many ways. And you're, you know, you can get antler hungry pretty, pretty easy. And that's how you get talked into that stuff. Now I've shot some stuff at long range. Uh, yeah. I have, and I've missed a lot of stuff at long range and I've had my heart broke at long range a lot. And, you know, I guess maybe people do need to experience that at, at some level, but I, I really like what you're saying is, you know, double your distance if, because the, the goal, the goal is to be super, super clean on the shot. Right. And, and right. have the animal expire very, very quickly and recover him with no real challenge. Uh, that, that should be the goal. And uh, that's hard to do at 80 yards. No, it's, it's tremendously hard to do at 80 yards. And following that double distance practice rule, if you're, if you're expecting to shoot at 80 yards, you should be doing most of your practice at 160 yards. <laughs> Sorry, most guys aren't doing that. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, about the furthest that you can get out and realistically practice it, for most guys is, at, well, shoot, even if you're at a, at a really nice range, hundred yards is hard to find a place to practice at. Yeah, and if you're, if you're doing 90% of your practice at hundred yards, then you, your range should be 50 yards on a kill shot. If you're following that rule of thumb, you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, um, there was something else I was going to ask. Oh, when it comes to bows, one of the things that I've seen a lot of guys do these days is overbow themselves. They, oh, yeah. they want, and, and for some reason here in the last five years, and I can point to a few contributing factors, but I'm not going to, but uh, there's guys that are trying to go out there with an 80 pound bow. And in my opinion, and when you're, when you're spotting, stalking mule deer, when that deer stands up, you're wanting to draw, and you're wanting as little motion as you have to have. You might need to stand up because of the brush. You, you might feel more comfortable standing up. Um, but when it comes to time to draw that bow, you want to do it with as little motion as you possibly can. Ideally, you should be able to hold your, your bow outright in your bow hand. Put the pins on the deer and draw that arrow straight back to your face without moving your bow hand at all. If you can't do that with the bow, with the poundage that you're shooting, and I can't tell you how many guys I'm seeing grab 80 pound bows and in order to get it back, they've got to put that bow up in the air and and draw the thing back like this and then come back down on the target. Uh, It's just not a good way to go in my book. Yeah, Um, I know. I think I think there's a there's there's a lot of challenges with with that for sure and you're right i think you know we we are uh, you know this is a hobby industry and we're you know this is a this is a macho sport and you know we're all about magnums of shooting long range and how hard can i hit him and all of that and the reality is the first thing you got to do is you got to hit him and you got to hit him right. right which That's means right. you know i agree with you you know full heartedly that you you do want to draw your bow back as smoothly and as with as least amount of movement as possible Especially if you're going to do what we're talking about, which is get in tight on big bucks and, and wait them out, right? Yeah. So you're going to have to be a lot more careful when you get into that in that close range. And and the reality is today's 60-pound bows are shooting harder and faster than 
than bows from 15 years or 20 years ago were at, were oh, yeah. at 80 pounds, right? And so, you know, it's, it's a, there, there's definitely an ego component to that, that if you, you know, get grounded, check yourself, make the shot first. How do you do that? Um, I am a proponent of, you know, of, of heavier weight arrows. Um, and yeah. I'm a proponent of shoot the heaviest bow that you can shoot, but with the condition of what you've described, which is you can draw the bow back comfortably, yeah. you can control it and you can do it with the least amount of movement and you can make a re- make really good shots. If you overbow yourself in that high adrenaline moment, again, you're just adding another variable that you can't practice and it's going to bite you in the butt. Yeah, my rule of thumb is, and this is what I do with my kids, is I tell them, I want you to be able to sit on your on your butt on the ground, and which is an awkward position, and I want to see you draw that thing back straight to your, you know, without moving your bow hand at all, pull it straight back, the string back to your face, and if you can do that with whatever weight you're shooting, that's your weight, that's what you need to be able to do because. Those situations come where you've been completely still for an hour and a half, two hours. Your muscles are, are you're not stretched out. You're not in a, you might be in an awkward position. It's very important to be able to do that with the bow. And I don't always think that people are doing it just for ego. I think that they're doing it because they really think that the speed that they're picking up with that extra 10 pounds or something like that is, is going to trump all of these other things. In my book, it doesn't because you run into the the issue of making too much motion when you draw. And one of the one of the other ones is what if the animal stands up and faces directly away from you right as soon as you draw the bow? And now you have to hold. And you have to hold that bow for a certain amount of time. And if you let down, you're going to spook them. You can get stuck holding your bow for up to two, three minutes sometimes. Um, and you know, it, when, when you jump up to a bow that is too heavy for you, that becomes impossible. Yeah. I think people, you know, often will, you know, think about holding a bow for a minute or holding a bow for two minutes, you know, like being an easy thing to do, but that, that is, that is a brutal thing to do. And not only that, as you get to the end of that minute, let's just call it a minute, you get to end of the, uh, you've held that bow for a minute. Um, now you got to make a good shot. That's right. Yeah. And, and you are not in a good scenario to make a good shot when, when you're doing that. So there's just a whole bunch of, you know, as, as we talked, I mean, the variables start stacking up against you when you yep. put yourself in a situation where you're, where you're super uncomfortable. You know, I mean, yes, shooting a bow that hits a deer harder is a good thing, but, but it, doesn't, it does not, it doesn't overpower the ability for you to make a good shot and hit the deer where you need to hit him. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. And you're just, I I shot my, I shot my first mule deer when I was 13 years old. I shot him at about, I don't know, 35 yards, something like that. And I shot him in the chest. I think my, I mean, my arrow was, I mean, I was shooting like a 30 pound bow and my, you know, I don't know, I don't know how heavy my arrow was probably a little heavier back then, you know, I don't want to age myself here too much. He he was, (laughs) he was shooting cedar arrows guys. (laughs) (laughs) But but the thing is, is that, you know, he hit the deer, right? You know, the arrow went all the way through him, right? I mean, yeah. you don't, you know, they're not, they're really, they're not that tough from a standpoint of, of getting penetration on him if you hit him in the right place. You hit him in the wrong place, it's a different story. So, to focus on hitting him in the right place. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to be fine. I mean, you know, deer have a will to live and elk have a real will to live. So, you want to hit him in the right place. That's just the most important thing you can do. I don't care yeah. how heavy a bow you're shooting. And if you yeah. shoot him in, if you shoot him in the middle, you know, and, and you know, shoot him in the, in the sweet spot, you know, with a 40 pound bow or an 80 pound bow, it makes no difference. No, no, they're, dead you're going to, you're, you're going to kill him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> any other advice that you can think of that you would have for somebody that's looking at doing, say their first DIY mule deer hunt? Um, I can, we can go down so many different trails here. You, you, you just said something about hitting one in the middle and I thought, oh man, ask him about, you know, uh, recoveries and things like that. But, uh, um, let's just say that somebody was telling you, Randy, I want to go on my first DIY mule deer hunt. And let's say that it's early season in that, uh, in that velvet stage. Um, 
what is some of the advice that you're going to give to them? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. Yeah, it's it's super loaded. It's super it loaded. But there's um, so much. I mean, the, the first thing you have to, you know, the first thing you, you got to understand and the advice we should give is that, you know, don't be discouraged too quickly. Stick with it. You know, pay attention, you know, doing all that because, you know, this in, in today's world, you know, how fast can I run out there with as little setup and practice and get the buck and get the, the Instagram photo, right? I mean, it seems like we live in that world today. If that's you, the first time mule deer hunting on a, on a do it yourself is m- might be pretty disappointing, you know, right? Yeah. So you got to have that patience. But, you know, a, a whole bunch of, of is again, patience. Be slow. I, I hate the guy who's like, how fast could I get over the top of the mountain, right? Slow down. Yeah. Look through your binoculars often. Spend, spend as much time looking behind your binoculars or, or, as you are hiking at a minimum. I spend way more time behind my binoculars than I do hiking. Um, right. Find those deer. Find those deer a long ways away. Uh, I'd say this is, a, this is a key component of my success is... is you know, a lot of people, you know, run over the ridge and look in the canyon. I want to try to figure out how I'm going to look in that canyon from three quarters of a mile away. Right. Um, find those deer at, at a half mile, three quarters of a mile, a mile away. Find those deer in that range so you know where they're at, so you know how to keep yourself out of sight as you work your way into, you know, an opportunity to, to, to put, put yourself in an opportunity where you could actually do something with it. Uh, those deer will see you a half mile away. And while they may not run off the mountain, they now know you're there and they're on alert, right? right? So spend a lot of time behind your binoculars. You will, one, you'll just see a hell of a lot more stuff anyway. Um, yeah. But when you do find the bucks you want to chase, you know, you've just got a better, a better chance of, of, of thinking about how you're going to get there. And, and at the end of the day, you can't go straight in. You've got to put yourself, you know, in the shade, in the off canyon, on the backside of the mountain. I mean, you've got to, you've, you've got to do all that. But the first, the first time, do you, do you, I guys going to, I mean, it, there's so many challenges, man. I don't even, I don't even know well, where I to like go with the, that. I like but the partner. advice that you gave. I mean, slow down, slow down. That, that is number one. That, that, that is, that's huge. That, that's yeah, huge. Is. And it's oh, applicable yeah. to all kinds of things. Right. Like as, as my, you know, as I hunt with my kids and, you know, I, you know, I find myself not necessarily being able to keep up with them but i my excuse is i see more because i'm going to take more breaks on my hike and every time i'm not hiking i'm looking through my binoculars i'm going to find more more critters i'm going to learn the country better i'm going to see what's actually happening and you just ran over the hill and walked past stuff or blew yeah. stuff out of a canyon slow down is a is a big one if i could go back in my career i think about all the big bucks i've messed up right all the big bucks i've messed up and there's a lot of them you know if, if I could go back and do all those deer over again, it's going to come down to a couple things. One is slow down, be more patient. Um, well, there you go. Slow down and be more yeah. patient. I'd have shot more deer. I'd have shot more yeah. big bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we covered a couple of those things earlier on that, that fall right in line with that, which is, you know, don't get too close. Don't, get don't too try close. and get them up. Yeah, that all goes right in there with slow down. Yep. And I would say for, for somebody who's, you know, if they haven't shot a lot of mule deer and you, you know, and you're trying to do this on your own and you're going in there, do not get hung up on how big you think the deer is. Right. I mean, yeah, everybody wants to shoot a big buck. Everybody wants to shoot a mature buck and, and, and whatnot, but the lessons you will learn by taking a two-year-old deer all the way from what he did when you shot to what you did after you shot to how you got close to him. Yeah. They're easier, right? Your deer right. Are, are fairly easy by, by comparison, but you're still going to learn lessons and don't be afraid to go learn those lessons. Don't be afraid to, to do that. And, and, um, and you know, once the shots made and you've connected on the deer, there's a whole nother set of things you need to know. Like, how yeah. are you going to track this deer? What do you, you know, how long are you waiting uh, do you know where you hit him? Um, how are you going to follow the blood trail? You know, what happens when you, when your blood trail runs out, depending on where he's hit, you know, what are you doing next? How are you, how are you, you know, getting back on a blood trail? All of that, that there's a, there's such a challenge with that. And then there's obviously the challenge of now you've recovered him and now what are you going to do with him? If you've never dealt with, you know, dealing with a, with a downed animal before on your own, um, you know, that in itself is a big challenge. Um, uh, 
probably especially the when it's a hundred degrees outside. Yeah, when yes. You're talking about yes. And you I know. think, I think, you know, a really good piece of advice is if you can, is, is to find somebody who will take you along, somebody that can mentor you, um, who's been there before, who can help coach you through, you know, a recovery and help coach you through and show you how to take care of a deer on the ground and help you get that deer, you know, back and, and, and do all that. Um, you know, do it yourself. Doesn't mean do it by yourself. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, That's exactly right. Mentor with somebody if you can, you know, until you hone some of those skills in and and develop some of that uh, that skill set that gives you some confidence to be out there by yourself, like me and you like to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, man, this is I can't. We're already through an hour. Yeah. <laughs> that was like lickety split. Well, us two buddies getting together, telling hunting stories. Like my wife says, she says, you can tell hunting stories for about 20 hours straight and not even breathe. And I said, well, I get me through part of them. Yeah. Well, and man, we really try with this podcast not to, I hate when I get into a podcast and it, they're three hours long or something like that. And I end up, I forgot what was even discussed the, on the first <laughs> one. You know what I mean? But it ends up being frustrating sometimes because there's so many different directions that you can go with some of these yeah. that they easily could end up being two, three hours long, you know, yeah. but we've got to cut it off at some point. And, um, man, we'll have you back on for sure sometime here real soon. Um, you, what do you, what do you have coming this year that you're most excited about in the fall uh, as far as hunts go? Uh, I've got a big season planned. Uh, really, yeah, I know you, I, you, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but one hunt out of any of that, what, what's the one hunt you're excited about? Well, I, I, um, I'm looking forward to, to spending about three and a half to four weeks on the West desert of Utah, chasing these big desert mule deer. That's the hunt that I've got lined up this year. That's my favorite hunt to do. Um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a bunch of free time this fall and I'm going to spend most of it doing that, you know? Uh, so well, I'm looking fantastic. forward to that, but I, but I've got a bunch of lead in, I got a lot of lead in going into it. So I got a lot of stuff to get done between now and then, and got a lot of stuff to, to do after that. I'll spend some time in Kansas hunting whitetail with my boys again. Uh, and so I'm look, really looking forward to that. That'd be my second, you know, probably favorite hunt plan for this year, because I'll be doing it with my, with, with my boys and, uh, something that we've done often and will continue to do so. Cool. Uh, you know what, last question, um, with these big changes that with the, the new cam system and everything that's happened this year. Um, and uh, which bow are you shooting? Which bow is Randy, the one responsible for a lot of these changes? Which bow are you, which bow are you shooting? Well, I'm shooting an RX. Yeah, I'm shooting an RX five ultra. Like I've said earlier, I, I enjoy a slightly longer axle to axle and a little bit more generous brace height. Both seem to tune a little easier. They're a little, quieter you know i just find them to be a little bit more forgiving and as i said i mean that's what i'm really looking for in a setup is is ultra forgiveness and and tunability shootability and all those kinds of things so yeah i'm shooting an rx5 uh ultra i, I you know i'm that ultra guy i've always shot the longer axle to axle bows and uh yeah. the, the carbon rx5 has just been you know fantastic bow by far one of our our better carbon bows over the last number of years and uh wow. really really enjoying shooting that bow I'm almost, uh, it, I'm shooting the aluminum for the first time in a long time this year. Yeah. And just, and part of it was because it was the first one that was available, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, it's I'm been a strange year. Yeah. I, I, I'm on the venom 33 and I, well, I think, the know, venom, I think the venom 33 it is probably, yeah, in my opinion, probably the best aluminum bow that we've built for a number number of years and and not necessarily because of the axle to axle uh just you know it's a it's how the cam system lines up and marries up with that axle to axle so for the majority of you know the the, the majority of bow hunters are going to be sh you know shooting somewhere between 28 and 29 and a half inch draw length uh that, yeah. that that's the norm and that Venom 33 in that 28, 28 and a half, 29 inch zone is the, is one of the highest performance uh, bows that we've ever we've ever built. When when you just think about how the bow is actually performing, uh, the combination of how that geometry and that cam system came together on that 33 is amazing, um, and is definitely you know definitely a, a, a fan favorite. It was sweet shooting and uh, and everything that 
I've drawn back an hour. We're early. We're early. But everything that I've this bow has good juju. I just got <laughs> back from Nebraska and filled all my turkey tags. And I was like, oh man, I love this thing. I there love you it. go. There you go. Well, don't mess with it, right? Keep I it know the way it is. And uh and, and just <laughs> and just shoot it and fall in love with it more. That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Randy, I'll talk to you again sometime real soon. Um, hope everybody enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.